I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Vinnan, professor at King's College London and author of a great new book that's recently been released, Second City, Birmingham and the Forging of Modern Britain. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you for having me. It, it, it's great to have you on. Now, um, the first question uh, that I'd like to ask is, what made you want to, to write a book about the history of Birmingham? Well, it's always uh, slightly hard to say why one writes a book, and one always gives kind of um, retrospective answers that are more coherent than the reality at the time. But um, uh, obviously, partly because I grew up in Birmingham. I mean, I'm from Birmingham. Uh, my mother is still living in Birmingham. We still have a, a family house my sister and I grew up in. Um, so uh, I felt a certain kind of affinity with it because of that. I felt um, that it would be interesting to write something uh, that was a long way from what I'd written in the past. So that I wanted to write something partly that would uh, kind of have a sense of place. I wanted to write something which I imagined would draw on things that I would know from having grown up in Birmingham. Although mainly what I found, of course, was there are all sorts of things that I didn't really know about Birmingham in spite of having grown up in Birmingham. Um, and I wanted to write about Birmingham partly because it's seen as such an unfashionable place and because I feel that there's always a kind of air of condescension when people talk about it. So I was particularly struck by the way in which it became important to the Conservative Party uh, in recent years, especially I think post-Brexit referendum years, mm -hmm. where it's seen as this kind of, you know, oh, Birmingham is real England. Um, and so most famously, of course, Theresa May makes her speech about, you know, if you're a citizen of the world, you come from nowhere, um, which he makes in Birmingham. It's a speech that's written by Nick Timothy, who's a very self-conscious Birmingham person. Um, and I felt this is um, a very strange way to see Birmingham, which, of course, is a place of uh, migration throughout its history. The whole point about people in Birmingham is almost all of them come from somewhere else uh, and a place of change. Um, so I wanted to write about it partly to kind of capture that. And I'd also wanted to write a history that would be unsentimental. So I think a lot of local history, especially local history of Birmingham, in fact, tends to work on the assumption that, you know, you've got to like the place you're writing about. And I don't think there's any reason why historians have to like the place they're writing about. Um, so there are things about Birmingham I like, and there are things about Birmingham I don't like. And I think it would be crazy to write a history of Birmingham that didn't in some ways recognise that there are some rather troubling bits of Birmingham's history. And of, of course, Birmingham's history is one that is um, intertwined uh, to, to a large degree with the Industrial Revolution. But of course, the, the, the book starts... Um, long before that with the emergence of um birmingham uh from the from the anglo-saxon um, period you, you mentioned the uh the foundational mythos to, as, as to how birmingham uh got its name um but but of course until the um until the industrial revolution until the um en enlightenment birmingham was perhaps not the um the the, the premier uh place in the in, in the midlands that it, it is now seen as today uh, could you just give it a, a, an explanation as to what, if, if someone um, listening was transported back to to Birmingham at the, at the turn of the uh, 16th century, what they would have 
seen there because then it was a quite a, a, a small place, relatively speaking, wasn't it? Yeah, so it's small. You're right until uh, I suppose the 18th century, and then kind of yo-yoing up a bit after that. So, um, I mean, the title of my book, Second City, actually, Birmingham is only the second city in England from 1911 onwards. So Birmingham's transformed by two things, really, part, partly by people moving into it, which they're doing certainly as early as the 16th century, uh, and also by uh, the fact that Birmingham itself is moving in the sense the kind of city limits are being pushed out all the time. So in 1911, there's a big expansion of the city limits, and that's the point at which it becomes the second most popular city in England. Um, uh, before then, um, I mean, in some ways, it's very hard to capture what Birmingham's like before a certain point, because one of the things about the well, the town as it then was, the city eventually, is that um, there's not an enormous amount of kind of architectural continuity. So, you know, you can walk around the Strand where my office is in London, uh, and quite quickly you can see buildings that would date back a very long time, and you can, you can see a kind of street pattern uh, in the city of London that would date back a long time, and you can see geographical features that define the city, which obviously haven't changed. Uh, so, you know, the River Thames and so on. Um, it's much harder to capture that. Much harder to capture that kind of thing in Birmingham. So, um, I remember when I was growing up, two things um, that strike me in retrospect. One of which is, I can remember my mother talking about when she first moved to Birmingham. So this would have been just before I was born, early sixties, um, and she sort of said, "Well, you know, a bit south of our house, it used to be just fields, um, and this was entirely kind of built up by the time." I was old enough to be conscious. It's five or six years later. Um, so the city's physically changing a lot. Um, and the other thing I remember very strikingly, I mean, this is going back before the 16th century, is um, uh, at school we had a rather kind of ritualistic learning about Birmingham Primary School. Mm. It's at Northfield Manor. It's kind of an area kind of equidistant between the university and what used to be the Longbridge Car Factory, very kind of socially interesting area. But... Um, so we used to have this kind of ritualistic thing where we'd learn about Birmingham's entry in the Doomsday Book, and this will be the, like the first appearance of Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And it was only when I wrote this book that I suddenly realised actually Northfield, the area around where I grew up, was a separate settlement from Birmingham, of course, at the time of Doomsday, and was bigger than Birmingham. So you know Birmingham's kind of absorbing areas that are slightly autonomous around it um, up until that stage. But 16th century, it's still. I mean, little more really than a kind of industrial village. You know, you could name all sorts of places around Britain that would have been bigger than Birmingham at that time. The change, is, as, as you mentioned, comes um, later during the 18th century. What drove um, that change, do you think? And to what extent was it uh, reflective of Britain's e expanding influence around the world of the growth of the of, of the British Empire and the impact that then had on, on locations around Britain, which previously had been relatively um, small uh, settlements, suddenly became much more important because of increased trade and, and, and the need for increased uh, manufacturing capacity as well. Look, those are hard questions to answer. So um, Birmingham doesn't have a kind of obvious single advantage in terms of natural resources or in terms of location. Or anything like that. So, um, in a lot of the twentieth century, in fact, um, central government planners think Birmingham's too, too kind of prosperous of its own good. They think um, 
too many people are moving to Birmingham, it's too crowded, uh, and they want, particularly in the interwar period, then again in the 50s and 60s, they want to move industry uh, to what they see as underdeveloped areas, to the north, to Wales, places like that, or not so much underdeveloped, depressed, dep declining areas. Um, and one of the problems they have is they actually can't see why people have come to Birmingham in the first place. They can't see why industry is in Birmingham in the first place. They can't see it having any natural advantages. So I think it's a very kind of uh, complicated uh, economy, which depends quite a lot on people. Um, so uh, particular families, very important to development of uh, industrialization in Birmingham. Uh, some people would say it's dependent partly on religion, that Birmingham is a particularly um, welcoming place to nonconformists and particularly to some quite small kind of nonconformist sects, especially the Unitarians, who are never very numerically big in Birmingham, mm. but very economically and politically influential. I don't think that is in itself a kind of terribly plausible argument. I mean, I don't think, although it's true that Birmingham doesn't have the kind of institutional Anglicanism that a lot of other towns have, uh, I think it's more that Unitarians move to the city and therefore the town and therefore other Unitarians kind of follow them. Um, and I think Birmingham is very much a kind of entrepot place. It's a place where people meet from other places um, and a place where um, it derives importance from its relations with other places. So its relations with the black country where there are natural resources, um, its position, I suppose, as a rather kind of central point where trade can meet those kind of things. But it's quite a hard economy to pin down. Uh, and I think one of the things that happens quite a lot now is there's a sense that um, you know economic success must be something you can kind of put in a bottle and label. There's a kind of magic solution you can find. I don't think Birmingham provides that kind of magic solution. Um, uh, the second part of your question, um, how does it relate to the British Empire? Well, it obviously relates quite a lot from the 18th century onwards to globalization. Mm -hmm. So people like uh, Bolton, big Birmingham industrialist, are, are selling their products all over the world, mm -hmm. very kind of conscious of doing that. Um, it relates to Empire, and I suppose the thing that one especially associates with the early stages of empire now, slavery, mm -hmm. in quite complicated ways. So on the one hand, Birmingham was full of people who are opponents of slavery. So the Unitarians and the Quakers, both, as I say, small but very influential groups in the kind of Birmingham grand bourgeoisie, they're almost invariably opposed to slavery. But of course, they do all sorts of business that in practice means they're economically benefiting from mm. slavery. So notably, I mean, most ludicrously, um, the richest family in Birmingham at one time are the Gortons, who are Quakers, mm. uh, and they're gun manufacturers, and they have this sort of wonderful uh, collection of uh, moral justification. So they say, although they're Quakers and they're against violence, um, you know, uh, violence is going to happen. So people need guns. Um, and then a lot of these guns, in fact, very cheap, useless guns, are taken to West Africa and traded with local chieftains for slaves. Mm. So again, the Gultons are really very heavily implicated in the slave trade, um, but it's not directly implicated in the way that, say, Liverpool or Bristol would be. Mm. It's not a port city, um, which has those very kind of direct links. And it's also, I suppose, later on, um, not a place that's administratively linked to the empire uh, in the way that London or parts of Scotland, for example, are. So it's not a place where you know lots of people are going out to work for the Indian civil service. Um, so you see Birmingham as a place where 
the empire is seen in very sort of um, uh, brisk economic terms. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the key question is, can we flog these people things or can't we? Uh, and when uh, there's a man called Tip Tafter, mayor of Bowie at one time, who makes a great sort of tour of the empire in the 1930s, uh, and he's utterly uninterested really in what other might, people might see as the glamorous aspects of empire or empire as an adventure or empire as a political project. What he really wants is just, you know, can I make money out of these different places I'm visiting? And um, of, of course, any discussion of the history um, of Birmingham would not be complete without mentioning the influence of the Chamberlain family mm -hmm. and um, ha ha how they were, uh, you know, in, in important, not just in politics in Birmingham, but um, British politics in, in, at the time in general. Uh, what do you think? it was about Joseph Chamberlain that especially made him stand out as a uh, in, in, incredible figure in, in 19th century politics, such an important figure in 19th century politics. And how much importance do you think his relationship with, Burnham, with Birmingham was to his rise in, in, in the ranks of um, politics? Uh, I think he's, uh, he's very important. He's uh, I mean, rather unlike the people I've just been describing, he's a kind of ideological imperialist, or he becomes mm -hmm. yeah. one. Um, he comes to think the empire is very important and obviously leaves this kind of Chamberlain legacy, both through his own two sons, Austin and Neville, um, and through people like Leo Amory, another Birmingham MP, who's very much a kind of Chamberlain, Joseph Chamberlain protégé, um, all of whom are really the kind of last throw, I think, of trying to make the British Empire into something that's going to be slightly different in the 20th century and that they think up until the Second World War is going to survive. So I think in those ways, the Chamberlains generally are important. I think Joseph Chamberlain, uh, very different from his sons in this respect, is just a mind-bogglingly extraordinary individual. And maybe he'd have been mind-bogglingly extraordinary anywhere he'd gone. So he arrives in Birmingham at the age of 18, I think, coming from London. Um, and so although one kind of you know, thinks he's almost synonymous with Birmingham. Uh, really, there's a particular part of his life, the kind of period of his adult business career where he's very intertwined with Birmingham and then this quite brief period where he's Lord Mayor of Birmingham uh, and then he becomes more of a national politician. I think the reasons why Birmingham kind of ties up with Chamberlain are um, partly, I think, there's this high point of Unitarianism. Chamberlain's a Unitarian. He's very much associated with other Unitarian families, especially the Kenricks. So his first and second wife are both Kenricks. Um, and the Kenricks are a slightly more kind of subdued, less flamboyant group of people. But they're very important as providing a kind of support network for first Joseph Chamberlain and then his sons. Um, they provide him with contacts. They kind of run things at local level politically while the kind of Chamberlains are away in London being national politicians. Um, I think most of all what's striking about Joseph Chamberlain though is, um, and the thing I like about him, although I think in some ways he's a terrible person, the thing that's hard not to admire about him is his total contempt for the English establishment. Um, so that everything you think about England, um, which is Anglicanism, you know, Chamberlain's not an Anglican and he's not after the death of his second wife, probably a religious believer at all. Now, this is mind-boggling when you consider that he becomes effectively a conservative, becomes in many ways 
one of the great conservative kind of heroes um, that people now like Nick Timothy look back on. You think this man who's working with the third Marquess of Salisbury, working with this kind of arch high Tory conservative, doesn't believe in God. Um, he's a Republican in his early career. So I appeared on Radio 4 on start of the week, the day after the Queen died, which was like being on Soviet radio, radio after Chernenko died, something, you know, we all had to uh, do our solemn voices. But um, I said rather flippantly, you know, can I say Joseph Chamberlain was a Republican? And they said, hell no. <laughs> and so I thought, this man is taking positions in the 1860s that are regarded as too radical for Radio 4 in 2022. Um, uh, and um, he uh, is contemptuous of the aristocracy. You know, he just laughs at the idea that he himself might take an aristocratic title. Um, and um, although he works with aristocrats kind of when it suits him, um, he represents a completely different kind of world. And he's very much a, a man who believes in being kind of self-made. I think a very important quality for some people in Birmingham, which is not always something that makes them nice people. I mean, they're tough, they're ruthless, they're often rather contemptuous, I think, of people who they see as not being capable of making their own way in the world. Um, but on the other hand, uh, in Chamberlain's case, I think very much his sense is, you know, he's pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He has no particular time for the kind of hereditary ruling class. Um, and I think also, something that's important about Joseph Chamberlain and important about this whole network of people around him. So this will be true about the Kenricks, true about the Beals's, another Unitarian family with whom inevitably Chamberlain's wrote intermarried, uh, true about the Cambrys, or the Cambrys are Quakers, not Unitarians, is that um, they are people who have uh, an interest in money that they see as useful for things they can do with it, which are sometimes, in fact, philanthropic things. So they all give away quite a lot of their money and they all devote quite a lot of their time to doing things other than making money. So Chamberlain, having made quite a significant fortune quite early in life, then just kind of walks away from it and becomes a politician. Um, and I think in that way, Birmingham's different from obviously London, but also Liverpool, Glasgow, places more associated with trade, with shipping, with industry, um, where fortunes are larger but where people become kind of possessed by their fortunes. You know, they have to kind of go on making money because being rich is itself an expensive thing. Um, and so there's a whole world of kind of, you know, yachts, grouse moors and hunting lodges and sending your boys to eat, which begins to, to, to suck all the rest of the British industrial classes into being kind of pseudo-aristocrats. And I think Birmingham is unusually resistant to that. Um, I mean, if you... You're at Warwick, you must have been to Birmingham occasionally. Yeah. Uh, and I was always very struck by the importance of Edgbaston, this kind of leafy suburb, which is actually very close to the centre of Birmingham. And most of the big families stay in Edgbaston for most of the 19th century. And, you know, they don't want to move out by a grand country house. Mm -hmm. um, so something that is uh, important during this period for, for, for many uh, even even though in um, terms of television it was depicted somewhat later in Birmingham's history, are the um, gangs the uh, referred to as the as, as the Peaky Blinders, but but there were of course other gangs that were active in in Birmingham in in the late nineteenth century. What do you think of the way that the kind of gangs were um, portrayed in the television series Peaky Blinders? 
how accurate do you think it is to the actual activities of, of, of the kind of gangs that were active in, in Birmingham during the um, late 19th century, early 20th century? And what do you think we can reflect on in, in terms of thinking of, um, you know, uh, modern issues with, with gang culture and youth violence, looking back at how the Victorians dealt with it and how it arose then and, and, and what the causes were of it during the, the, the late 19th century, early 20th century, as compared to the, the causes of it today. I'm a disadvantage when it comes to Peaky Blinders because I think it's such a bloody awful series. I've never <laughs> been able to watch very much of it. Um, so, um, uh, I mean, first of all, I think it tells you a lot about television um, and a lot about the extraordinary capacity of television to kind of phrase itself. Um, so, um, of course, one of the big things about Birmingham in recent years is that um, uh, although the BBC is very solemn about, you know, getting out to the provinces and presenting programmes in Birmingham. They've actually closed down all their studios in Birmingham. And the only programme that's still made in Birmingham, as far as I can see, is the um, uh, famous story of rural folk, the archers. <laughs> um, uh, so um, I don't think Peaky Blinders is realistic. Um, there is a, a, a series made in the 70s, um, which I've never been able to um, get a full sequence of, um, but which you can pick up little bits of on YouTube called Gangsters, um, which has always struck me as much more kind of edgy and interesting. I mean, it's obviously set in the time. It's something that deals with kind of Birmingham immigration, partly filmed in the Rum Runner nightclub, the nightclub where famously Duran Duran started. And I always assume that Gangsters is also the origin of um, that great uh, Warwick commentary uh, band, uh, the specials, of course, uh, their first big hit is um, Gangsters. Um, uh, but... Um, Peaky Blinders, I mean, the television program is ludicrous. Uh, so that, uh, as far as I can tell from my very brief excursions and trying to watch it, it's a bit of the Godfather, like all bloody gangster things. They, they have all these kind of Godfather quotations. Uh, it's a bit of a television series from the 1970s uh, called When the Boat Comes In, which is set in Newcastle, and which I think actually anticipates a great deal of what um, Peaky Blinders does. Um and it's you know sort of ludicrously implausible uh, in its plot lines, um, and um, it doesn't bear much relation to Birmingham. I mean, there are these smogging gangs that exist in the late nineteenth century. Um, there's obviously criminal activity. Uh, there are bookies. Um, Carl Chin, who's the kind of local historian of Birmingham, who is himself from a family of bookies. I think originally illegal bookies. Yeah, uh, is in some ways the person at the origin of writing about these gangster families. But Carl Chin, in fairness, does say Peaky Blinders is not very realistic. And also, Birmingham criminals, insofar as they existed, were not very admirable people. Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. And I, and I think it's fascinating, isn't it, as, as, as you, you mentioned there, the uh, the distinction between what may be written by a historian and what may be produced by a, um, by a, a television uh, company and a, a, a screenwriter. Um, in, in terms of Birmingham... Uh, at the the turn of the twentieth century, just before the um, First World War, how different? I I, I mentioned earlier. What, what do you think um, if someone was was taken from now and, and plonked back in uh, Birmingham in the sixteenth century? What, what do you think they would see? If that same person suddenly went forward to um, Edwardian Birmingham. What what kind of changes do you think that they would see? And how similar was was Birmingham at, at that point to the city as it is now? 
it's I mean it's a city of incredibly dramatic change. So um, uh, the Edwardian period obviously they'd see a city that's much bigger. Uh, they would see a city that's um, kind of on the cusp of being a centre of a certain kind of modernity. So I think um, one of the things that I ended up thinking about them, which wasn't where I started. So I, I started thinking, in fact, that the book would be more focused on earlier periods. And also, I started thinking about the one kind of most troubling question for historians, which is, you know, does history exist really? I Is there really any degree of continuity over time? Um, and I'm still troubled by that question in the sense that I'm still not certain in my own mind whether it's meaningful to write a history of Birmingham and whether, you know, uh, a really kind of severe theoretical critic might say um, that organising people because they happen to live at a certain point hmm. of longitude and latitude hmm. in historical terms is as meaningless as if I were to write, you know, a history of people in the world whose names begin with B or something. I think there is a lot of discontinuity in Birmingham. Uh, I think also one of the things I ended up concluding is that Birmingham, although the cliche of Birmingham tends to be very much the 19th century city, i.e. the city of Joseph Chamberlain, and a Victorian city, and also a city which is often talked about in terms of kind of um, a very negative view of the 20th century, the 20th century as the uh, century in which the Victorian structure of Birmingham was knocked down, particularly after 1945. In fact, Birmingham is primarily a 20th century city, so that's when it's uh, its biggest, that's when its industrial growth is fastest. And that, in some ways, is when it's the most important kind of epitome of certain kinds of things about Britain. I wanted to kind of rescue the 20th century by the time I finished writing the book, rescue the 20th century from the idea that it's just a kind of afterthought to Birmingham's history. Uh, and to say, well, it teaches us something, some things that are important about Britain generally. So I suppose those things would be, uh, first of all, Britain is a modern industrial society. You know, I think we tend to think um, Britain's heyday generally comes about, I don't know, the 1850s. Uh, and we forget how much Britain as a whole uh, goes on growing economically and how much is still, you know, big economic power in the 20th century. I think it changes our view, particularly of the interwar period, particularly the 1930s. So Birmingham, although it has unemployment, uh, is always much less affected by unemployment than the North, the Scotland, Wales. Um, so one of the key things about Birmingham in the 1930s is it, more than ever before, it's sucking people in from the rest of Britain. And so I think I'm right in saying that 3% of the entire working population of Wales moved to the Midlands in the 1930s. And of course, very largely, they're moving to Birmingham. Um, so, you know, one of the things I, I understood writing this book, which I think I hadn't understood when growing up in Birmingham, was that because my family come to Birmingham in the early 60s, and because, as you can tell from my accent, I'm very kind of middle class, I always felt slightly ill at ease with, especially my primary school. And yet, looking back, I can see that actually all the boys from my primary school, who were all kind of white, quite largely working class boys, um, they were actually all people who, whose fathers or grandfathers had come to Birmingham. They were all people who had been Scottish or Welsh or Northern, if you'd gone back just a generation or so. Um, so I think there's that big transformation of Birmingham produced by migration before the Second World War. Uh, 
Birmingham in the Second World War is hugely important. So it's almost the kind of the industrial city mm-hmm. of the Second World War, particularly uh, manufacture of aeroplanes. Um, and then, of course, it's uh, the boom city of the 50s and 60s. So it's a city with incredibly high employment, almost oppressively high employment. You, you can see that um, if you're a, a school leaver in Birmingham, it's actually quite depressing because, you know, your dad or your uncle or something says, I'll get you a job down the Longbridge factory. You start on Monday, you know, so you finish school on Friday and you've got one weekend of freedom yeah. um, before you've got 40 years of working on the track at Longbridge in front of you. Um, so that um, it's a city of uh, very full employment, very rapid economic growth, um, a city which, having been a conservative Chamberlainite city in the first half of the 20th century, the Chamberlains having effectively become conservatives, then becomes mainly a Labour city after 1945, although a particular kind of Labour city, a kind of right-wing, mm. uh, social democratic city, quite a lot of Tammany Hall, quite a lot of corruption in Birmingham. Um, and I suppose that would bring me to the other point, which I wanted to make, which is that I think there's a lot of nostalgia now for the post-war period. So Eric Hobsbawm's big history of the 20th century mm. talks about the golden age, 45 to mid-1970s. Tony Judd, again, historian of Europe, talks about the whole of Europe as having that kind of period from the end of the Second World War until the kind of economic downturn of the 1970s. I think historians are very influenced, even unconsciously, here by Thatcher. I mean, I think there's a very strong idea that um, Britain was a you know a nice consensual place before nasty Mrs. Thatcher came and spoiled it all. Uh, and I think looking at Birmingham complicates that view a bit because on the one hand, Birmingham stands for everything that people regard as good about the post-war period. So for full employment, uh, industrialism, you know, being an industrial rather than a service economy, um, and having a centrist but Labour centre-left type of administration. Uh, and yes, on the other hand, there are lots of things about Birmingham about which one might not feel nostalgic uh, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. So those would be, as I say, first of all, the fact that local government is often pretty corrupt. Uh, they would be uh, that um, immigration often goes with racism. So Birmingham would be remembered for the Smedic election of 1964, famously racist campaign that's technically just outside the Birmingham city limits, but very much associated with Birmingham, and for Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, which is given in Birmingham. So I think racial tension is a big feature of Birmingham. And I mean, I just can't describe what it was like growing up in Birmingham, even as a a middle-class white person in a middle-class white area. Um, uh, I can remember when I, I wrote my chapter on immigration in post-war Birmingham, I called it Neighbours. And that comes from the slogan used by the Conservative candidate in the uh, Smethwick election of 1964, where he uses what we now uh, tend to call the N-word. Mm-hmm. And I can remember uh, the sort of historical conventions changed in the process of writing this book. So originally, I was going to start the, that chapter with the full quotation. And then... Uh, you know, my students yeah, yeah. aren't used that word, Richard, anymore. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking at first, well, writing about Birmingham in the 1960s and 70s without using racist terms is like writing about Oliver Cromwell without using the word damnation, because these are words that one used to hear all the time on the street. You know, yeah. one used to hear, I've heard policemen use those terms. Yeah. 
so that uh, I think there are there are things I wanted. The thing I want to really sum up is to say there's this boom period in Birmingham, but it's not always a happy time. Mm. And of course, this is also the time that goes very much with Birmingham being architecturally um, a very kind of brutalist city with the structuring of the city around the motor car, which means, of course, the structuring of the city around the driver, which means in turn the structuring of the city around middle-class, middle-aged men. Mm. So it's, it's a city where there's kind of patriarchy is almost written into the structure of the post-war city. Yeah. And I, I mean, just, just, just thinking of, 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 of Birmingham um, now as, as, as compared to that, that post-war um, period, as, 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 as you say, um, after the war, Birmingham uh, transitioned very much from a, a, a conservative, a politically conservative city to more of a, a, um, a right within, in, within the context of the Labour Party. Um, social democratic city. Now we're seeing um, Birmingham very much being a, a battleground between uh, a particular type of, of modern conservative and 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 the uh, Labour Party uh, as well. What do you think the political feeling is in in Birmingham and, and, and more broadly the West Midlands now? And and how much do you think that it is related to? the Brexit referendum and, and the relationship that had to um, car manufacturing, which of course has and has had such a, an important place in, in the history and the economy of, of Birmingham and the West Midlands? Uh, that's an interesting question. So I think, first of all, I should say that Birmingham's relationship with conservatism is uh, a kind of um, intermittent. So obviously Birmingham is a very liberal city in the 19th century. Joseph Chamberlain is initially a liberal. It then becomes conservative because of Chamberlain's sons, really. Um, it then goes mainly Labour after 1945, but it's never um, it's never a kind of red wall area, so that um, it's never an unqualifiedly Labour place. Yeah. So there are always times when the Conservative Party controls the council. There are always uh, con uh, parliamentary seats that the Conservative Party wins. Um, Edgbaston stays as a conservative bastion and right up to the 1980s, you'd have thought it inconceivable that Edgbaston would not be won mm. by the conservatives. Um, the areas on the outskirts of Birmingham, the areas which increasingly the middle classes move to um, as they get out of the city itself. So Sutton Coldfield, which technically is part of Birmingham from 1974, Soli Hull, which has never technically been part of Birmingham. Those are the two safest conservative seats in the country in 1979. Um, but also, there are quite a lot of working class people in Birmingham who still go on voting conservative in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. And this is particularly true, in fact, of car workers. Uh, one of the big questions about um, relatively recent history is uh, why do working class people vote for Thatcher in 1979, which to a certain extent they do. Uh, and the answer to that is car workers. If you look at the constituencies that go conservative in 1979 across the country, they're very much car areas. They're what um, sociologists in the 60s would have called affluent workers. And sociologists in the 60s say these people have instrumental voting patterns. They vote Labour because they think Labour suits them, but they're not loyal to Labour. And of course, the implication, which I think sociologists at the time don't fully explore, is these people might then decide later on that their interests lie in voting Conservative. And in 1979, quite a lot of them do, for complicated reasons, I think. I think partly they're voting against Labour Party pay control in the 1970s. 
partly in a funny kind of way, they're both simultaneously the kind of people who often go on strike in those big, or not big, but widespread unofficial strikes in the 1970s. Mm. And so on the one hand, I think they're often dissatisfied with their employer, which of course, in the case of British Leyland by now is a partly nationalized employer, um, but also sometimes dissatisfied with their unions in ways that make them, curiously enough, turn to the right of their unions. I think racial tension in factories is also enormously important in the 1970s um, and is a, a reason for people moving to the political right. And I think in Birmingham, anti-Irish feeling is a very important element, especially after the Birmingham pub bombings mm-hmm. of the early 70s, where um, on the one hand, a lot of Irish people, a very important part of the working classes, withdraw their support from Labour because they say, you know, Labour's behind uh, British government policy in Northern Ireland at this stage, of course they are. And um, a lot of uh, non-Irish people uh, acquire really kind of almost a pogrom mentality towards the Irish. So things like uh, support for the restoration of the death penalty, very important part of the Thatcherite appeal in 79. She obviously never does restore the death penalty. Um, is I think, a big feature in Birmingham. So Birmingham is yo-yoing between the parties up until 1979. Um, I think then, of course, very hammered after 79. So, I mean, I assume most people realise by about 1983 that voting Tory wasn't a good idea uh, if you were a Longbridge worker. Um, but then there's a curious feature about Birmingham, which is that I think actually it's exactly the opposite of the city that um, uh, Theresa May and her advisors imagine it to be this kind of Brexit city this, you know, deep England, anti-metropolitan city. So first of all, a key thing about Birmingham is that it's a Blairite city. So now um, the MPs for Birmingham are overwhelmingly Labour. Mm-hmm. And the moment at which it acquires that overwhelmingly Labour support is actually 1997. Um, now, the one exception to that is the area around Longbridge, the Northfield constituency, where I think there's great bitterness about the closure of the Longbridge factory in the early 21st century, the final closure. And I think that becomes anti-European, partly because people blame BMW, which had been the last kind of significant owner of the Rover Group, as it had become. Um, They do that very unfairly, because in fact, it's then bought by a bunch of British chancellors who turn out to run it into the ground in uh, a way which is much worse than anything BMW had done. Um, And also, I think that the protests about the closure of Longbridge often acquire an anti-Blairite dimension, because Blair's prime minister... And so it's very easy to present this as kind of the policy of this, you know, distant person from Islington. Um, but there's 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 a a division in Birmingham really. So that one area around Northfield, Northfield is now um, apart from Sutton Coldfield, I think the only conservative constituency in Birmingham. All the other constituencies are Labour. Um, so Birmingham is actually a place that should make the Labour Party feel quite hopeful, I think, and also. I think a bit sceptical about the kind of Keir Starmer version, which is that, you know, the Labour Party has to embrace Brexit uh, and has to um, uh, talk with these kind of ostentatiously red wall accents um, to win people over. Um, So I think Birmingham is uh, a place that ought to give the Labour Party quite a lot of hope. Um, Of course, it is true that the mayor of the West Midlands, Andy Street, is a Conservative. I think his, his election is very misunderstood. And again, you get this slightly patronising reference to Birmingham because there tends to be an assumption that there's going to be kind of one spokesman for Birmingham and this is going to be Andy Street. Uh, people forget the fact that, A, Birmingham people on the whole voted against having mm-hmm. West Midlands mayor at all. Mm-hmm. 
um, B, the turnout for the mayoral elections is very small, much smaller than parliamentary election. Uh, and C, Andy Street does not win Birmingham votes. If Birmingham votes alone had been counted, Andy Street would not be mayor. So it's much more a West Midlands uh, phenomenon than a Birmingham phenomenon. I think to turn to your, your last bit of your question about you know, the West Midlands rather than Birmingham, I think there is now a kind of conservative ring around Birmingham, partly of places like Solihull, which have been conservative on and off for a long time. Um, partly, I think, the black country, where I think there's a kind of uh, deeper pessimism and probably a more, more sort of red wally Brexit type of view. Um, but I think Birmingham itself is, um, I mean, it's a slightly kind of trite way to finish, I suppose. But um, And it's always hard when you're writing a book that's partly autobiographical. It's partly, it's hard to know, you know, how much has Birmingham changed and how much have I changed? I, you know, I now go back to Birmingham as a visiting Londoner. Uh, I walk the streets of Birmingham as a 60-year-old man rather than a 16-year-old, which means, you know, things like violence don't affect me in the way that they did affect me uh, when I was 16. Um, uh, but it seems to me that Birmingham is a much more kind of tolerant place, a place that has embraced multiculturalism. You know, one of the things I like about Birmingham is, um, you know, you ask a Sikh for directions and you get a, a, a reply in an incomprehensibly thick Brummy accent. Um, so, you know, it feels like a place where um, uh, immigration is now accepted as, or the results of immigration, we think people are not immigrants anymore for a long time. But um, uh, the, 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 on the whole, that kind of um, citizen of the worldness, which uh, Theresa May denounced, is actually something that applies quite well in Birmingham. I think also um, a key political division in Britain now is a very simple one, which is uh, to do with higher education. Um, so it seems to me that you know, if you're asking about Brexit, if you're asking about political divisions in Britain now, they're very heavily to do with whether people went to university or not. And of course, Birmingham and the West Midlands is a big centre of higher education and a big centre particularly of these two very distinguished universities, Birmingham and Warwick. Um, and I think... Birmingham University especially, is now um, a focus for a kind of, um, a particular kind of Birmingham. So, I mean, a lot of graduates, my sense, is now stay in Birmingham mm. in a way they probably wouldn't have done one. So Birmingham is not a place where on the whole the university is educating local people, but it's sometimes turning them into local people. Um, and, of course, Birmingham is located in Edgbaston, which used to be the heart of conservative Birmingham. Uh, and is now a Labour constituency and went Labour, as I say, in 1997. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the, the podcast, Richard. Thank you uh, so much for taking uh, the time to, to speak to me um, about the book. If people want to, to find out more about the book, where should they go to, to purchase a copy? And if, if people want to find out um, more about you, that uh, the other work that you do, wh where should they go to find out more about the, the things that you're doing and, and the work that you're doing? <laughs> Well, I'm not very good at social media, so um, I also at this stage to say that uh, you know you can go to my um, uh, website, but I didn't have a website. But I do have the great advantage of having a very unusual name. So if you just Google Richard Viner, um, along with uh, lots of abuse from my enemies, um, you will find um, uh, me quite fast. So you'll find my website at King's College London, which is where I teach, um, and um, you will find um, uh, obviously. Uh, places to buy my books would just be Amazon, um, though uh, 
I'm also very struck by how many bookshops there are in Birmingham, actually. Um, so um, uh, when I said to my publisher I wanted to um, write this book, they said very sniffily that uh, uh, it would only sell in one or two bookshops. Um, and I realized in very typically London fashion, they hadn't actually bothered to establish how many bookshops there were in Birmingham. It turns out there are lots and lots of very dynamic bookshops. So um, I have done some signings around Birmingham. I think I probably will do some more in the future. Um, uh, but uh, as I say, it's relatively easy to find me and my work uh, just by doing a search on the web. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.